For too long, we thought we could bend the world to suit just us, the human race. No more. As we face the challenges of climate change, inequality and environmental degradation, we know that to simply sustain is not enough. We need to regenerate. A regenerative future is one where people and our planet flourish, hand in hand in the long term. At the RSA, we're building a programme that brings people and ideas together to show how this could look, act and feel. Join the regeneration. Visit the rsa.org forward slash regenerative dash futures. Hello. I now spend most of my working time thinking about healthcare. I often observe a stark contrast. It's between two types of very common news stories. The first is the latest breathless account of med tech innovation, a simple blood test that can identify the signs of the 30 most common cancers, a new drug to counteract high cholesterol, devices that enable us to control computers with our thoughts. The second story is of a system creaking under pressure, patients either frustrated at outdated technology or resistant to using the new like digital consultations. The economist J.K. Galbraith famously wrote of the contrast between private affluence and public squalor. Arguably today, we live in a world of technological abundance and social deficit. Why is this happening? Could it get worse? And what can we do about it? My guest today has good answers to all those questions. This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast, brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor. So I'm delighted to be joined by the innovator, public intellectual, entrepreneur, writer, Azim Azar, author of a high-profile new book entitled Exponential, How Accelerating Technology is Transforming Business, Politics and Society. Welcome, Azim. How are you? Matthew, it's such a pleasure to be talking to you again. Thank you for having me. And how's the promotion of the book going? Well, it is the era of social media. And so there are lots of retweets and there's lots of Instagramming of people holding up the book. And as a first time author, it's just really exciting to be able to share in their excitement. So you'll be able to develop an account of the relationship between prominence on social media and people who are actually by the book. That's that kind of leaning back, leaning forward distinction. I remember hearing once about a, a video that had been watched by thousands and thousands of people calling for donations to charity and then a, a pathetic amount of actually being donated to the charity. So are you confident that the enthusiasm I've seen online will turn into sales? I think I am, I am confident, at least with the first cohort, because over the last six years, I've been writing a newsletter that has got a lot of fans and, and I talk to them quite a lot. They help me get smarter and they feel quite invested in this project and in the, the summary of the ideas that are in the book. And as a result, I feel those first couple of thousands of sales are going to be by people who think, you know, I, I participated in making this happen. Yes, that's good. It's the community that you've built up. Now's the time for them to show up for you. And, and and I've certainly seen an enormous amount of enthusiasm about the book online. So let's start with the kind of core thesis. Now, that core thesis is that there is a disjunction between technology and the pace of technological change and the pace of reform of our institutions 
institutions defined as sociologists define them very broadly, not just kind of institutions in buildings, but social institutions like families and laws and things like that. Now, I'm sure you recognize this, Ian. That's not a new hypothesis. I remember when I was at school, which is a long time ago, a cartoon that was produced by Lowe just after the Hiroshima bombing. And it's the world, and it's got two babies on it, one wearing a Stars and Stripes nappy, the other one wearing a hammer and sickle nappy. And there's a scientist throwing to them a hydrogen bomb, and the scientist is saying, come babies, play ball. Now, that idea... Yeah, that idea that we are babies and yet we have this technology that is able to destroy us. That's an idea that's been around a long time. But you're wanting to say in this notion of the exponential age, you're wanting to say there's something different about it now. T- tell us more about that. I agree with you. It's it's not a new concept. And in fact, in the book, I, I talk about a sociologist in the US who was writing in 1922, William Ogburn. And he described the idea of cultural lag that was emerging between technologies like machinery in the car and the way in which liability laws were implemented in, in the US. I think what's different today is that the technologies are changing very, very rapidly. They are improving year on year by 10, 20, 30, 40%. And that's compounding. And that has a really disarming effect on our ability to understand that rate of change and understand its impact. And it's catalyzed still further by the fact that we are also interconnected. I mean, the the recent problems with logistics and truck drivers, notwithstanding, ideas and physical products manifest themselves in our economies much more quickly than they did 60 years ago at the time of the start of the atomic age, certainly 100 years ago at the time that Ogburn was writing. So that the pace is more rapid. The pace of change is often not just across a lifespan, it's a couple of times within a decade. And that's that feels different. That feels like we're dealing not just with hot water, but we're dealing with water that's above 100 degrees centigrade. It's turned into into steam. It's different qualitatively and it's different quantitatively as well. And one of your key points is these exponential technologies are general purpose technologies. So they're not just one particular device or application, but they cover a broad spectrum and that what they enable themselves is broad, but also they then interact with the other general purpose technologies. Yes, that's right. And a general purpose technology is traditionally something that comes along not very often. It's things like the printing press or electricity and the internal combustion engine. But we see the echoes of those technologies through our society for, for decades afterwards. In the case of the printing press, it was uh, you know, the Reformation and then moving into the Enlightenment and, and the age of science thereafter. But today, to have uh, four families of technologies, uh, I talk about computing and I talk about our ability to tinker with biology, within energy and within manufacturing, is quite drastic. There's no part of the economy that isn't touched by those. And because they've all become digital in a funny sort of way, they do interact with each other in quite often confusing and unpredictable ways. And and I think that that confluence of four general purpose technologies, and some are more broad than others, I mean, I agree that computing is probably the most broad of all of them, I think is not something that we've seen historically and certainly not within the context of this interconnected global economy in which we live. 
And yet, as you've recognised, they're exponential, but yet there is still a lumpiness, isn't there, to the process by which a technology spreads. You know, we have been talking about 3D printing for quite a long time, but still, as you recognise in the book, it's still pretty, in comparison to the overall manufacturing market, small. I, I have my doubts about... We've seen driverless cars, for example. I tried to persuade the RSA several years ago to have an event called Five Years to Driverless Cars, because that's what everybody was saying, and to do it as an annual event, as a way of resisting technological determinism. I have my doubts about synthetic food and whether that will take off, you know, for the same reasons that we've been resistant to GM food, for example. So how do we combine this idea of kind of exponential rise, which is an accelerating curve, as it were, and the fact that Quite often, these technologies can be around for quite a while and not take off, and then and then suddenly they do so. If we knew the answer to that perfectly, you and I would be Silicon Valley kingmakers, <laughs> uh, probably relaxing on our beachfront property in New Zealand while the world goes to hell in a handcart. Sometimes a switch can happen very quickly. I think about uh, what happened with electric vehicles in Europe and in Norway just five years ago, only one in five cars that were sold was an electric vehicle. And that was the highest saturation market anywhere in the world. And as of 2021, it's closer to 70% the electric vehicle share. So just in five or six years, we've gone from you know, a niche to the bulk of the market, the overwhelming bulk of the market. And, and the question I think there is, at what point do we get that combination of the price being right for the customer and the technology just being reliable enough that it's not just bought by technology aficionados? Uh, and we've got there with electric cars, and we did so just in six years. And the thing to think about a car is it's a big, chunky vehicle. It's not like updating your app. It's not really like switching from the yellow pages to, to Google. That's a very lightweight interaction compared to what happened with cars and what's happening elsewhere in the in the energy sector. And so the question that you raise, which I think is so valuable, is yeah, to what extent are people really going to want to have lab-grown synthetic meats, for example? And you know, today it's a it's a novelty. I can see the resistance, and I'm not sure it necessarily appeals to me as a food eater. But I also recognize that sometimes we can be surprised by the way in which these systems end up changing. And so I don't think we should necessarily count on resistance in the same way that I don't think we should simply proselytize like some people in Silicon Valley do and say, look, this is going to happen, you know, get on the train or get run over by it. So we have to find that balance. And I think that, you know, conversations like this is where we find that, mm. that point of balance, and that point of tension. Yeah, no, I think that's it's fascinating that in a sense, what we're saying here is it's not that all technologies or even all potentially general purpose technologies will accelerate in a particular way. It's that certain characteristics of the modern world, global connectedness, the power of data, for example, they have the capacity that once a technology does start to take off, that it will accelerate at the kind of rate that you you describe in the book. And I think that, you know, it's really interesting, isn't it, that contrast between electric cars and driverless cars, that, that I, you know, I guess a few years ago, you know, we would talk about them as similar kinds of projects. And of course, one of them, exactly as you say, is advancing. And it's difficult to believe that in 10 years' time, it won't be that the overwhelming majority of cars will be electric. That will be the nature of cars. I'm still pretty sceptical we'll have driverless cars in 10 years' time, partly because I'm not sure people 
want them. I think people quite enjoy driving. And partly because they face really very, very difficult questions about how it is you mimic human responsiveness to indeterminate situations. It's such a great point. And, you know, when it comes to driverless cars, the issue is, I suspect, as much technical, if not more technical. I think the way that we end up getting to driverless cars is through a change in something that you're an expert in, which is systems and the interplay between rules and infrastructure and the dynamics of many different parties in a system. And so by that, I mean that I can imagine autonomous trucks showing up and running up and down parts of our motorways well ahead of the idea of my just getting into my my car in, in Cricklewood and saying, you know, drive me to Sutton Coalfield. I don't see that happening for a while because it's technically very difficult, but I can see that aspects of what we currently think of as something that has to be driven will get nibbled away at by the autonomous vehicle. And I think that's part of the challenge with the techno-determinist view, which is that you get something to work in a lab, you extend an exponential trajectory to its capabilities, and you say, well, therefore, this will work. And I think what we have seen is that that is not always the case. You know, and I think a really great example is just the IT industry, which is the harbinger of all of these technology platforms. It took a really, really long time to businesses to ultimately digitize. You know, the first real microchips emerged 50 to 60 years ago, the first general purpose integrated circuit 49 years ago, the Intel 4004. And it's really only until I would say the first decade of the 21st century that we can start to say, listen, we really live in a world that is, you know, digital first from the perspective of business, because it just sometimes takes a little bit of time for the groundwork to be put in place. But my contention in the book is that a lot of groundwork has now been put in place, right? That a lot of groundwork has been put in place because of the arrival of the internet and the fact that we all have smartphones and the fact that companies, founders, entrepreneurs, and the capital that backs them understands what the hurdles are in getting this technology to diffuse widely in an economy and is much, much better at tackling all of the roadblocks than they were perhaps in in previous iterations of technical innovation. So it's a very, it's a complex picture. And I think you're right to ask the question that you asked. I wish there was a simple answer. And I could say, well, the answer is six, Matthew. It's, it, that, that's what it is. But it's it's not. The answer is a, it's one that we have to talk about, we have to discuss, we have to disagree with. And, and what I try to do in my argument is to paint some of that nuance because I don't want to pretend it's predetermined or that it's it's even easy to think about. Now, I want to turn in a second to to some of the sites of society that you explore here. I just want to say thank you in a conversation with somebody at the cutting edge like you, that the places you have chosen to cite are Cricklewood and Sutton Coalfield. You see, you know, you can keep your Silicon Valley and your San Francisco and all of that. Cricklewood to Sutton Coalfield, that, it, it reminds me a bit, I saw the German band Kraftwerk about 30 years ago, and they decided to do their famous hit Autobahn, but to use names of places they'd gone on tour to in the UK and it didn't work, and it didn't work gloriously because you just can't sing from Scunthorpe to Stoke-on-Trent <laughs> on the autobahn and not sound absolutely ridiculous. So I love the idea that we should understand technology through the prism of the journey from Cricklewood to Sutton Coalfield. Now, 
let's turn to some of the kind of, as I say, these these kind of the, the, the sites in society that you want us to think about in particular. And what your the way your argument works is to to explore the impact of the exponential age on particular parts of society and then get us to think about what we might need to do if we want to close this gap between technological possibility and our social institutions. So let's start with one that I think about a lot, or used to at least, which is work mm-hmm. and kind of labor relations, power relations at work. So tell us first about how the exponential age is changing work, and then maybe we can talk about what, what we need to do to, to address that. I have to say my my chapter on work is so inspired by the report that you wrote a couple of years ago and, and some of our conversations. So if I'm parroting back to you what you taught me, I apologize. You know, when we think about the future of work in these technological times, I think we fundamentally focus first of all on the so-called robot jobs apocalypse. That automation and and this thing that people called artificial intelligence is going to get so powerful, it will start to replace people's jobs and their work and their, therefore their livelihoods. And that's that's the general, I think, media narrative. But then there's a second issue that emerges, which is on the way to this full automation, the arrival of these gig working platforms that essentially turn the zero hours contract into little chunks of task piecework will start to create a workforce of day laborers, essentially. And then the third issue, which I think is spoken about less frequently, but there are some journalists who've concentrated on this, like Sarah Connor at the Financial Times, is that employers will start to use algorithmic systems, the ability to monitor their employees' behavior, to take tailorism, scientific management to its extreme and you know, poke and prod, nudge and cajole and beat workers into a sort of work life that looks like that being of an automata. And that's traditionally how this is presented. And the way that I look at this argument is I say, well, I don't really believe the first one. I don't believe this issue of the automation is in short order going to take away lots of jobs. During the pandemic, the companies that were the most heavily automated in the world, like Amazon in the UK and JD.com in China hired enormous numbers of people. In the case of Amazon, it was more than 350,000 new hires in one year. And I think that automation at work is a very complex issue. The technical problem it has to solve is much, much harder than we, we think. And in any case, as many economists regularly point out, when new technologies emerge, they often create new roles and they expand the pool. I'm much more concerned with the power relations impacts of the second and third issue, which is what actually happens to the employee's power and status and their ability to secure what you call good work in the face of these new technology platforms and the algorithmic systems of management that they create. And my summary is the issue will not be the quantity of work, by which I mean whatever the Office of National Statistics counts as the number of people who are working, which is a rather sort of fungible and woolly measure, it'll actually be the quality of work, the the nature of the work that people are doing, the amount of dignity that they have, the amount of security they have, the amount of respect, and ultimately income and opportunities for development that they get in a world that might be increasingly dominated by algorithmic management and by platform working. 
and that leads you amongst other conclusions. And it was kind of great to read this in this book about technology in the future. One of the things we need to do is actually go back to having stronger trade unions because we need collective voice for workers because of the scope that technology has to lead to this kind of tailorism on steroids. And, you know, there are other things that you also argue. So I agree with everything that you say. So let's take an area which I hadn't thought about so much, which is the impact of the exponential age on conflict, warfare and conflict. And again, tell us how it's changing, what the impact it's having, and at least maybe one of the kind of ways in which you think we need to address this, again, this gap between the technology and the institutions. This was one of my favourite sections to to write because I was a teenager. I was 13 years old when Top Gun was released, the film where Tom Cruise plays a Maverick F-14 pilot called Maverick, of course. And so it allowed me to go back into, you know, those sort of halcyon days, 1985, and, you know, the New Romantics and Frankie Goes to Hollywood and whoever else was topping the charts back then. And I think the fascinating thing is that what happens with exponential technologies is that they reduce the cost of certain types of bad behavior, malacting, because it's very cheap to launch a cyber attack on an adversary. And it's very easy to deny that you did it. It's quite different to you know, what countries had to do in the 70s and 80s and take their pilots, pop them into planes and fly them over hostile territory to drop bombs. And you you are putting the the sons at the time, as it were, of your, your voters' lives at risk to do things like that. And cyber attacks are one aspect of it. The dramatic decline in the price of drone warfare, dropping from tens of millions of dollars when the Americans first used predator drones 20 years ago to really hundreds or thousands of dollars to the most recent use of drones in in conflicts. And then, of course, how cheap it is to launch attacks on a wide population through disinformation across social networks. So you have this world where it's incredibly cheap for attackers to attack. And then if you think about it from the perspective of the, the defender, it's very, very hard to defend against it. Because if you're Thinking about your population's vulnerability to disinformation, in the case of the UK, that's 60, 70 million people whose perspectives you need to consider. If you're thinking about cyber threats and denial of service attacks, well, that's every business in the country. That's every home that's connected to the internet, which is essentially everyone. It's every one of us who's bought a so-called smart device and plugged it into our light bulbs or elsewhere in our houses. And that creates what the security analysts call an attack surface. So the attack surface, the the points of vulnerability have magnified, and I say this without hyperbole, exponentially, and yet it's much cheaper for adversaries to launch the attacks. And that creates a very, very febrile environment because it's just simply too tempting for anyone who wants to be a nuisance to push their digital red button, as it were. And so the way that I think this plays out and in the the course of, of sending the book to press and then it coming out, we've really seen it play out. We've seen a kind of continued use of disinformation strategies. We have seen several new significant cyber attacks across US infrastructure. It tells us that the route forward is one of disorder rather than one of uh, perpetual peace. And then I think the question is, 
How do we go about tackling that? And who are the parties at the table? And one of the parties at the table that's really important are the global technology companies, the ones that we know really well, like Microsoft and Google, and ones that are less well known that control parts of the infrastructure like Cloudflare and Akamai. These are the firms who can detect cyber threats early and they can stop those threats or mitigate them in some way. They have capabilities that no military, no national government has. So they have to find some way, we have to find some way of putting them at the table, you know, beyond whatever bilateral or informal or semi-formal arrangements they have with national governments. The second issue is that we don't really have mechanisms of communication and escalation. We don't have a kind of agreed protocol of you know, how do we ratchet up what we say in public around the, you know, to the media via the diplomatic channels and, you know, how our military and you know, cyber authorities respond. And I think that's quite risky. And it's risky as more and more automation gets put into these systems. You could have accidental escalation. What we learned during the Cold War, I mean, I suppose the most famous is the Cuban Missile Crisis back when Kennedy and Khrushchev were at sort of loggerheads was that having channels of communication becomes really, really important. And that's the, the so-called sort of red phone. But beyond that, once we really started to take the temperature down around the Cold War through assault treaties and, and START and, and the INF treaty in the 80s was this crazy notion to anyone who remembers the threat of nuclear holocaust that the Americans and, and what it was now the Russians would allow each other to inspect their nuclear arsenals, which is indeed what was happening around various parts of nuclear forces for many, many years in the start of the 21st century. And I don't think we're there yet with these exponential technologies and their threats, because I don't think people understand that when there is a denial of service attack that takes your online bank down, that is quite likely to have been ordered by a foreign intelligence service against the UK. It is an attack. And it won't be long before people take bigger and bigger risks and critical systems start to, to fail. And this is one area where I think you know, we have to collectively do a much, much better job. It's a hard one because it involves not only talking about the capabilities that we might have of offensively, but it also involves right at the other end, figuring out how we strengthen the resilience of every one of us who's connected to the internet, which is every single one of us. It is a fascinating chapter, and, and it's not just cyber that you talk about. You talk about you know, drones, for example, is another example of something where the costs have declined exponentially. And now, you know, attacks through drones, surveillance through drones is available to any householder when it would previously have cost, you know, nations hundreds of thousands of pounds. There's another wonderful chapter, which we haven't got time to get into, but it's around kind of the impact of exponential technology on kind of geopolitics or the politics of space. And I would summarize it in one sentence, which is a thing that sociologist Daniel Bell said about 60 years ago, where he said, in the modern world, we will increasingly find the nation state is too big for the small things in life and too small for the big things in life. And I, I thought that was a kind of coda for your analysis of the way in which the exponential age is likely to lead to cities really being 
at the kind of cutting edge of innovation and what that might mean for nations and what it might mean for other places, places that aren't in that kind of winner's circle. But I'm not going to ask you about that because people need to get the book to read about it. I'm going to, I want to end as in with a couple of things that, I mean, look, the book is a wonderfully readable length and I enjoyed reading it enormously. So I'm not criticizing you for it not being longer, but there was a couple of things which I kind of thought, well, I I don't want to add these into your argument. So the first one, and they're implied, by the way, the first one is that and I entirely support this. You want to argue that major corporate tech corporates, the power they've got, the unprecedented power they've got, they need to be subject to the kinds of constraints that we would normally put on public service organizations in terms of transparency and accountability and things like this. Now, I agree with that. But I think that part of that has also got to be that we have to renew our democracy. I think that part of the problem with states regulating tech corporations is that people have such a low view of our democratic institutions. So I think that things like devolving power, things like the use of deliberative methodologies for decision-making are vital because unless we can renew people's faith in democracy, if we say to them, would you rather the world was run by Mark Zuckerberg or another politician, I worry that they might say the former. So I would want to add the desperately important need to re-legitimize our democratic institutions as part of the story. What, what do you think of that? I mean, I think that is an absolutely fascinating, fantastic point. Uh, and I'm thinking for the second edition, I'll go off and do all of that. What I would say to that, Matthew, is that I, as you say, it's implied. I wanted people to think a little bit. And I had a battle with myself about how normative should this book be and therefore stray into being a little bit polemical and rather how much more should I take them through the the sort of the garden of the future showing them a highlight here and a highlight there and hoping that they could come to their own decisions and on this idea of people being able to make decisions on the things that matter to them this idea of subsidiarity in a way I was really trying to push some of that thinking to the reader to make the reader work a little bit. And I hope to anyone listening to this, this doesn't put you off the book because it would be easy for me once you have this position of being the author and having the privilege of spending five years thinking about this and a year writing it to say, and this is what you should do and this is what the recipe looks like. And I was trying to trying to avoid that because I, I would like people to go away and come to their own conclusions that may well disagree with me. But God, if they disagree with me, we've now got an opinion. We can now have a discussion. We can now bring this political participation into the space where it matters and therefore we can make a difference. We recently had on Bridges to the Future, Will Storr, who's written a book about our obsession with status. And I thought about Will's book a bit, reading yours, because the other question I wanted to ask is that isn't part of what we need to do to resist kind of technological determinism, to recognise the need to catch up our thinking in our institutions, also just to think deeply about what it is that makes us happy? That social media, for example, which massively accelerates our neuroses about status and can addict us in all sorts of ways... To resist this involves us just stopping a little and saying, but what is it that makes us happy? In the end, getting 10,000 followers or having our flat stomachs admired on Instagram, whatever it is, it doesn't make... What makes us happy is friendship. What makes us happy is experiences, being together with nature, art, culture, that somehow 
if we're going to resist the way that technology just drags us to places that we don't necessarily want to go to, we're going to have to enrich our conversation about what it is that really makes life worth living. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. And the challenge with so many of the new platforms, the challenge with having a global network that we can access simply magnifies any of those feelings of status envy or just pure envy that we have. And it's not just the sort of modern exponential technologies, of course. It is even technologies like the train and the financial innovation of the mortgage that allows me to move out of my parents' house and buy a property somewhere else and increase the size of my dating and mating pool so that I can compare and contrast more more broadly. And a lot of those trends were present you know, well before the exponential age. Of course, they are horribly accelerated with the technologies that we have today. So to some extent, what we have to do is start to figure out how we look back into ourselves. I have to confess, I mean, that was just a question that was probably too big to tackle in, in this book. But you know, what I've been doing in an attempt to manage some of that and look inwards and sort of understand the human condition is spend more time with with fiction that is driven by observation and the everyday you know rather than spend a lot of time thinking you know in my in my spare time about you know where is the next breakthrough happening i mean this is a moment where our humanity is what anchors us back to the things that you talk about which is you know what really does matter what does make us happy azim i think the question of how it is we get our institutions broadly defined to catch up with the pace of technological change is the most important question facing all of us. And you've written a book that's absolutely about that question. And I strongly encourage people to get hold of a copy of Exponential. Azim, thank you so much for joining us. Matthew, it's been my pleasure. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit thersa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen. Thank you for listening. Now, I'm far too modest to discuss my own book on this podcast, but, well, I'm not too modest to tell you about it. So if you're interested in work, the history of work, the nature of work, the future of work, and what we'd need to do to create a genuinely good work society, then why don't you check out my new book? It's called, Do We Need to Work? Thank you.